All right, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you have made us to know what it is to have a desire to seek you, what it is to have a desire to know you, <clears throat> and what it is to have a desire to serve you and to see your name be made holy in our lives and amongst us as your people. And I know that your word is what will instruct us in your word you speak to us life and wisdom and all truth you give us revelation of who you are you promise us what you have done is leading to what you will do you promise us hope you promise us forgiveness you promise us constant and eternal love. You promise us everything in Jesus. And so help our hearts and our minds to look to Him now. Help us to understand what it means to have the appropriate um, mindset and heart to approach You. Help us to understand what a great privilege that is. And Father, forgive us for the pride that creeps into all of our hearts that has some other motive at times for why we present ourselves as believers. So we thank you for your grace, and we need it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew 6, 5 through 6, we begin that most famous section on the Sermon on the Mount where we get the Lord's Prayer. As you lead up to the actual words that Jesus instructs us in, I want you to notice as he, as he prefaced this with in verse 1 of chapter 6, that he's going to make sure that we understand the posture of holiness and in particular here the posture of seeking the Lord in prayer that he's not if we haven't already understood it and in the Sermon on the Mount he is not giving us just a list of new laws to follow to be holy he is actually showing us what an intrinsically holy and righteous person looks like from the heart Right, we, re we remove anger and lust from our hearts and covetousness. We don't just simply not do those things. We have to exist from a place that is not those things. So again, we're going to deal with the heart or the posture of conversing and seeking the Lord versus simply uh, projecting like we seek the Lord. And... We like to point out when people are uh, obviously trying to practice a righteousness before us that 
they want seen and they want applauded. But we also have to recognize that we do that sometimes. We have a posture of pride in our religious experience at times. We certainly do. And, and maybe it's super subtle, and maybe it's really small, and maybe it's really infrequent. But we, we have to recognize that we're not without sin in this area that we're going to discuss today. And that if not for the grace of the Lord, if not His promised presence by His Holy Spirit, then we're not directed or corrected into the right posture. This is something that I think that we're going to have to continue to work on and remember while we're here on earth. But it's a great reminder and meditation to test ourselves that something that we do or hope that you do almost every day in praying and speaking to the Lord and thanking Him and confessing to Him, um, that you would remember first how you're going there, how you're approaching Him. Because yes, He's our Father. Yes, He's made that very clear. Yes, we are <clears throat> have a more intimate relationship with Him than anybody else. Yes, He has more grace for us than anybody else. But we are not informally approaching the sovereign, omniscient force in all of creation um, just willy-nilly. I remember I uh, took some kids to uh, a youth camp as a counselor. It's actually where I met my wife as well. And uh, I remember one of the other youth pastors getting up to lead us in prayer. And, you know, he's trying to be relevant and like a cool youth pastor, as unfortunately youth pastors try and do. And he says, hey, God, what's up? How's it going? And begins to approach God like that. And I had to instruct my kids afterwards, you know, don't approach God like that. We... we are grateful and thankful that he is such a good and gracious father, but we don't forget who he is. And we most importantly don't forget what he knows, which is everything. And that through our understanding of the scriptures and through Jesus' revelation of everything that we need to know for life and godliness, he is most concerned about your heart. So you're not going to approach him um, so informally and nonchalant and without care or, or admiration or adoration or worship and him not know about it. And does he accept that kind of worship? No. So you could be like Cain, right? And say, well... If he's not going to accept these good things that I do, then, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just do things my way. Or you could humble yourself and recognize that your heart, like mine, has a problem before him and you need help, like David. But as we begin these next several weeks to talk about prayer, we begin with, the approach to prayer. 
So I'll go ahead and read Matthew 6, 5 through 6. When you pray, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So how do we even approach the practice of praying, which is to approach God? Well, at the test, like I mentioned before, the way to constantly and consistently test yourself is to ask yourself the question, what do I seek? And in this context here, it's helpful for us to say, okay, especially if you are praying in public, because praying in public is a good thing to do. It's not like it's not a good thing to do. So let's get that out of the way. But ask the question, what am I seeking? Am I seeking the praise of men? Am I praying so that people hear my eloquent words and my deep, godly, spiritual speech? Or am I seeking knowledge and intimacy with God? You know the answer to that. God knows the answer to that. Everyone else may not. But if you're truly trying to orient yourself in the proper posture of approaching God, then you have to ask that question. And some of you, it's second nature. Some of you just kind of automatically are now doing this before you pray. And it really has a lot to do, in particular, with why I pause before we pray. Because too often, I, I go, especially as I often have to uh, pray in public, I just rush in. And, and, okay, people need some words here for me to pray for us all, so let me throw some out. Every time we are to approach Him, we're to do it with a right spirit and a right heart. Because we are actually seeking something from Him. We're actually asking. We're actually in need. We're actually uh, confessing. We actually have things to be thankful for to Him directly. And so prayer is real and serious. To pray is literally to address a deity with a request. And you do that in several forms and fashions. So in your bulletin you see we have a, a prayer of praise or adoration and a prayer of thanks. We need to add a prayer of confession. And certainly when I pray I hope that I'm interceding for all of us. So you're, you're praying because you adore Him, you worship Him, you praise Him, you pray because you have sinned and fallen short and you, you, you want him to, or you want to remember his covenant with you, that he will forgive you, that he has forgiven you. You want to thank him for that. You want to thank him for everything that is good that you experience from him. You want to ask him for things. Supplication. You have really real request, right? And you intercede. You have request for other people constantly. John MacArthur says, Prayer begins and ends not with the needs of man, but with the glory of God. It should be concerned primarily with who God is, what He wants, and how He can be glorified. So in all those ways that we pray, we pray to that end. Because if you take a 
synopsis of the whole Bible, you will come to find out that all of this is for the glory of His name. Yes, there are benefactors of Him doing that. You become objects of His grace and mercy which bring Him glory. But this is all for Him. It's not for you as the sole object of glory. It's for Him who is glorious and who is to be praised at all times, both now and forever. So not only do we have to enter prayer with the right heart, but that heart has to be oriented for God's glory. I'll give you a funny example. And please, don't take this as a, as a way to me trying to communicate any holiness. But we were thinking that we were going to have a baby yesterday morning. And so Tiff was walking a lot, trying to get him out, but he wouldn't come out. And so we were, so she wants to stop and pray. And so I as has become my habit to do, try and pray according to God's will. If you want Him here now, we're ready. If not, help us to move on from this moment. And then we stopped praying and she said, you know, I, just, I wished you would have just asked to get Him out. But I said, I can't do that. This is, this is about His glory and what He wants. And we both laughed. She, you know, but that's, that's how we have to orient ourselves in prayer. It's about Him. It's about what He wants. And that's always good. It's always good. What I want is going to have some flaws in it. Just because I'm a human being that's not glorified yet. He is. So everything He wants is what's good. Charles Spurgeon says, The habit of prayer is good, but the spirit of prayer is better. That's why Jesus begins this discussion with this example. You can't do this like you've seen done. That's not what prayer is. And if you take, um, if you work through your Bible, those that have been the holy people of God both under the Old and New Covenants, are those who make a habit of constant communication, mostly private with Him. There are those who desire something about Him, with Him, through Him, to Him. They're not those who are simply only praying in public to be seen. They understand that Praying is a holy moment. And we are to keep it that way. That's why Jesus says you don't do it this way, do it this way. And what's the way that he says to do it? He says, go in your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. So the how, the way to keep it holy is to do it in secret. Now, Obviously, this is not disregarding all public prayer. We have to understand our Bibles. But this is to say that it will mostly be in secret. Your conversations and communications with the Lord will mostly be done when people don't see it. I was at a, a 
Spurgeon Conference at the seminary back in, gosh, I don't know, March or April. Time is just flying away now. And um, it was about Spurgeon's personal devotions, this whole conference was. And the funny or ironic part about it was at the end of it, they had to say, like, well, we really don't know a lot about Spurgeon's devotions and private prayer life because it was private. When he would be in his study and have students around or other people around, and he would kind of reach a moment where he would go silent and then he would disappear into this closet in his office. And then he'd come out and he'd carry on with what they were doing. And he wouldn't speak about what he just did. He wouldn't speak about what happened. He wouldn't speak about why he went in there. He would just leave. And those were his secret moments. Going into his room and shutting the door and praying to his father. Now, hypocrites, because we like to talk about hypocrites, hypocrites proclaim a desire to seek God in public where people can see and call them righteous, and that alone is their goal. You know, this is, I think, even more easy to see today with Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and all this sort of stuff. It's really easy to see that kind of Facebook holiness. These people who get these pictures of themselves praying, and you're like, how did you do that? But... They do it. And that's what is all over their stuff. That's what they're putting out to the world. Look, 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 I was praying with this person. Or look, I was doing this in God's name. Or look, look at this. You know why? Because they're addicted, like Andy mentioned last week, to the likes, to the praise of men. They love it. They get their reward now. They live for now. They want what this world's going to give them now. They take a posture like these Pharisees that's not humble. What are these Pharisees doing? They love to stand and pray in places that are easily seen, street corners and synagogues. And there they perform their Holiness. <clears throat> you know, sometimes, and I'm not saying every time, but sometimes we can see that. People in our public places trying to take a, a posture of holiness. Even to present it as a humble posture of holiness. I've known guys who will kneel beside the pulpit before they preach to pray and are doing it solely to be seen for their holiness. Or how humble they make themselves while they stand before everybody else. I was just talking to Ethan before church started, and he said that he doesn't even really like coming to the pulpit to pray. Because it's hard. We understand that same battle for for the praise of men and pride. And, and Ethan wants to maintain a posture of humble, devoted holiness before God, not before men. You'll see it, right? Our, our good works, our, our love for God will be seen, but that's not the goal. 
That'll just be how we live life. So here, here's an example from the Bible of what it looks like to do this, right? And, and this is what comes out. This is what reveals the heart of people that like to do this. Luke 18, 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Right? He's proclaiming his personal holiness while he's standing and praying. This is obviously narcissistic and selfish and for the praise of men. Because what would he be hoping? People would be like, oh, yeah, you're not like that guy. Except he is. And that's what Jesus has come to reveal to all men. He warns us about these people. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And... You know what? This is probably sinful of me. I love to point these people out. I do. It's a, it's a sick thing in me. I love those documentaries that point out how wicked these uh, false religious leaders are. There's something in me that enjoys that, that makes me feel better about myself, makes me feel more holy. And that's wrong. Because if not for the grace of God, I could be doing the very same things that they're doing. I could be like this. Why not? There's nothing about me that's withholding me from doing this. It's everything about God. This is a terrible thing. Jesus proclaims often that in the kingdom of heaven, the least will be greatest. and the first will be last. There's something really interesting about Luke 20, 46 through 47, because immediately following uh, these verses is kind of that, that illustration that Jesus points out to his disciples about the, what you might remember as the widow's might. He points out that she gave all that she had. You know what I, th you know what I think he's trying to point out there? He's like, look what happens when you're leading from a place that's not devoted to God. You're going to destroy people's lives. Because they're requiring from these widows everything they have to live on so that they have more to live on. This is what we'd recognize as prosperity preachers today. If you want a list, I can give you one. But, but they are using holiness to devour your goods. And, you know, it's getting to the point where they don't even care that you see them do it. They're, they're more than fine walking around in $10,000 sweatshirts and suits and multi-million dollar homes simply built off the fact that they are in ministry. But these are the false teachers. And they love their 
presumed holiness to be seen before others. And lest we go the same way, you must test your heart always and make sure your private devotions to the Lord are from a a pure place. And prayer is most often private. Again, what are you seeking? And who are you speaking with? If you only pray when when there are people around, that's a big bad sign that you're not devoted to seeking the Lord. But that is not to say that you don't pray in public. Jesus prayed in public. But notice the words that we don't have recorded from Jesus. Matthew 14, 23, And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Mark 1, 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Wouldn't you like to hear that? But that's not for us. He is privately and personally devoted to the Father. Revealing to us that if Jesus is that way, then why wouldn't we be? So this whole time we've been talking about what he cautions us in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, Jesus is going to heal like everybody that comes to him, right? Jesus is going to do amazing things for people. Jesus is going to work miracles. Jesus is going to preach. He is is not disregarding any sort of public ministry. But if, if that isn't undergirded and fueled by a private devotion to the Lord, before the Lord, in the Lord, to the Lord, then it's false. And that's where the Pharisees are. Hopefully that's not where you are or where I am. So we test. Next, prayer is directed to the Father. Four times in John chapters 14 through 16, Jesus tells us to ask the Father in His name. It's just assumed that when we pray, we're praying to God. And that is a reminder of what Jesus has done. That he has created now a life and an environment which we speak directly to God. So to be able to approach the Lord is to be able to do so because Jesus brought us there. He tore the curtain from the most holy place in two and he ushered in his people. Right? Through the cleansing of his blood. And listen, the, the, God is Trinity. So he's three in one. So if you're praying to the Father, you're acknowledging, if you understand who he is, that there, that includes the Son and his Spirit. But is it wrong to pray to Jesus? We pray in his name, but is it wrong to address him? Well, in Acts 7.59... Uh, Stephen is, is nearing death 
from stoning. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So the answer is no. It's not wrong. It's not anything to get hung up on. You're, you're acknowledging who God is. You know that if he hears, the son hears, the spirit hears, they are one. So don't worry about that. But know that Jesus assumes we're going to be praying to the Father in his name. But back to the Father. What does it mean that he's in secret? Right? <laughs> Jesus describes him as in secret. Does that mean he's hiding? Well, obviously not. It means, uh, and we can attest to this through the scriptures, that he's, he's concealed from notice or knowledge of all persons except the individuals revealed. That's what that word means in Greek. That means there are obvious things about him in creation, but there are things that are not revealed to some. As Jesus prays at one point, you know, I thank you, Lord, that you have concealed uh, these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. So there are things about him that are only revealed at times. So there's, in essence, kind of um, secret. He's in secret. And if you want to know him, he, he'll let you know him, but he's not giving all his knowledge to all persons. Let's look at that a little more. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So there is a revealing of God that has to be given if you're going to know Him. But there's an intimacy described here in this verse that is different from the general revelation that all of creation has about God. You can look at creation, know he's good, know he is supremely intelligent, know he is supremely powerful. But there's other things that you won't know about him unless Jesus introduces you. Him being in secret in this way also means this, John 4, 23-24. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Do you see spirits? <laughs> Before you say yes, just hold on, okay? You don't see my spirit right now, right? Okay. Do you see truth? Just as a concept, no. I mean... You can read truth, you can hear truth, but as an object, you don't just like see it, except if you're looking at the face of Jesus. So if you're going to worship God who is spirit, you're worshiping someone you can't see. You would agree, and everyone outside of here would agree that that's true. But you know who he is, which is the truth. And you're responding to him with the spirit, which is real, but you can't see it. And worship and devotion and seeking him in intimacy. That's what drives you to that point. And the truth tells us who he is and that we should seek him. 
And Jesus says that the Father in secret sees in secret, which means he sees the intentions of your heart. This is what it means for him to be omniscient or having all knowledge of all things at all times. Jesus models this when he's here on earth, right? Remember when he calls Nathaniel and he saw him under the fig tree and that causes Nathaniel to kind of fall down and worship him and he tells Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet. Okay, he, he communicates that about God. He sees in places that are unseen is what that means. When we speak about what's going on in someone's heart, and I don't know what's in your heart, and we say things like that, we're saying we can't see what is, what is true about the inward person that only God knows. We can assume. Let me read to you all of Psalm 139. And as I read this, I want you to meditate on every word and, and know how God knows, okay? It's different than we know. He knows in secret. This is what it means for him to know and see in secret, okay? Look, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. 
Do you begin to see now how God knows you by seeing you? You're not going to approach Him in prayer without His complete understanding of how you're doing so. Which brings us to this point. Based on that, there's a reward. We're not even talking about what you're saying yet. We're talking about how you approach Him. And Jesus has already begun to talk about a reward from that point of view. Or from that place. Now the hypocrites reward, they have. They actually get what they want. So, you know, you, you know the old adage, beware what you wish for? To get what we want at all times could be disastrous for us. You only have had to raise one child to know that. If you give them everything that they have asked for, it could be disastrous for them. But in an act of judgment, temporary or eternally, God gives hypocrites what they want. They get the praise of men. And those who seek Him also get what they want. He promises us that. But I want you to notice something here. The word for reward in verse 5 is different in the Greek from the word for reward in verse 6 and in verse 4. The word for reward in verse 5 speaks to a tangible wage, something that you get for doing something immediately. You do something, you get paid. Or you perform your righteousness for others to be seen by them, and that's what you get. They saw it. And maybe they'll praise you for it. You got it. The other Greek word for reward can mean either tangible or intangible. That you get what you deserve or what you seek. And if that's according to His will, then you get that very thing He promises. Jesus promises that. But if we're seeking God, it, it may not result in the tangible thing that comes into our life. If we're seeking God, we are seeking holiness. We are seeking righteousness. We are seeking good. And we know the ways that that is actually personified, right? It's the fruit of the Spirit. If you're seeking those things, you'll have them because you're seeking the Lord. If you're seeking to know Him, you'll have Him because He promises to not turn away any seekers. He promises to reveal to us what we're after. He promises to open the door if we knock. He promises seekers something. He promises we'll have words when we need them, when we need them. He promises we'll have everything we need, in fact, when we need it. And that'll be the end of chapter 6. But notice, if we want to spoil the end of chapter 6 here, notice what he does tell us to seek. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, right? That's your seeking. If you're seeking that, you get that. 
This is, this is the thing, I think, that holds us up sometimes. We, we have to be very clear on what we're after. And I promise you, church, if you are after the kingdom and His righteousness, we'll get it. So what does this church want? Well, I want the King, His kingdom, and His righteousness. Because only that brings him glory. Only that uh, gives most good to our fellow man, especially our brothers and sisters. Therefore, that is the greatest thing we can see. And it's in him. Here's a concluding thought for us. If Jesus is seeking anything other than the Father and his will or his glory which he makes very clear through the Gospels that that's what he's doing, he would have taken the deal from Satan in chapter 4. Think about that. If he wants anything other than to do the Father's will and bring him glory and to fulfill his mission here for the Father and his glory, then he takes the deal in chapter 4 and you and I have no clue what it means to be a Christian. If the apostles want any other reward than Christ, then they stop preaching. Why? Because they die from preaching. They don't get the praise of men from preaching the gospel. They get killed for it. But if they want some other reward than Him, then they would stop. And thankfully we know that they did not. If you desire anything other than Him, then you may get that. You may get your reward now. That's why uh, it's, it's personified best in Joel Osteen when he wrote his book, Your Best Life Now. That is demonic. That is incredibly demonic. Because we're not promised glory till later. And glory in the presence of God is the ultimate reward. So what, what can we get now that's greater than that? Well, you can get the praise of men. Have fun with that. And that's judgment, by the way. If you look at Romans 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, God is giving people over to what they desire that's other than Him. And then what's to follow from that? Condemnation. I mean, an emptiness, a constant seeking. They're going to have to keep seeking, have to keep seeking, because there's nothing that can fill that, that hole that God has, or that the, that the fall has created in human beings. Relationship with God was the intention for mankind from the beginning. And when that doesn't exist, then every man and woman and child is seeking to get that back somehow, except they, they miscommunicate and understand what that problem is that's going on in them, and so they seek everything but Him. Even when He tells them, it's me, they say, no, no, it's what I really like. It's what I really want. And that's not you. Okay. Let's see how that works out.
Not to mention, if you read in Psalms, if you read in Proverbs, if you read in Ecclesiastes, you'll find that those rewards that this world is looking at as the ultimate rewards, the riches, fame, the deceitfulness of riches, even in the New Testament, are choking out the word bearing fruit in you, which leads to life. So the parable of the soils, right? The seeds that fall on those different soils. There's, there's that one soil where the deceitfulness of riches are described as that which is choking out the word from bearing fruit in that person. So, and, and I see that a lot lately. I see churches and, and people and leaders trying to marry rewards of the world with rewards of the kingdom. And you can't have both. And this chapter is going to talk about that. It's the natural progression of where we're going. There, there's an offering from the world which is personified when, when Satan tempts Jesus in chapter 4. And there's a reward from God which is being proclaimed by Jesus at all times. It's Him. So basically, folks, to wrap up here, before you even begin to pray, you have to investigate what your heart wants. And if you find, and you will, at times that your heart wants something other than him, then tell him confession and repent of that and ask him supplication for different desires. And he'll give you that because he wants all of his children to be intimately tied to him which means you have to desire him. And he's got to help us with that. David knows that. But do you know that? So I'll leave you with that. You respond to God in private prayer, and then we'll stand and sing together.